Welcome to the Breathe Easy Critical Perspective Podcast. My name is Dominique Pepper, and in this podcast, we interview leaders and experts in critical care. And for today, we go to Nashville, Tennessee to discuss choosing the right fluid in sepsis resuscitation. My name is Matt Semler, and I'm assistant professor in allergy, pulmonary, and critical care medicine at Vanderbilt University. Uh, thank you for having me. I'm Wesley Self. I'm an emergency physician and clinical researcher at Vanderbilt University Medical Center in Nashville. I'm the vice chair of our department and focus on the study of acute infections and resuscitation, largely at the overlap between emergency medicine and critical care medicine. So it's an absolute pleasure to have both uh, Wes and Matt on the podcast with us. Today we'll be discussing their article in the Blue Journal, uh, the December 2019 issue, entitled uh, Balanced Crystalloids versus Saline in Sepsis, a Secondary Analysis of the SMART Clinical Trial. So Wes, maybe you could set the stage for us. Why is the choice of fluids during sepsis resuscitation so important? Yes, thank you. Um, Matt and I have been thinking about this a lot over the years. Um, you know, we, we started thinking about um, IV fluids and specifically resuscitation crystalloids um, many years ago just because they're so common in our practice. I mean, they're basically ubiquitous in modern hospitals. And when we first started thinking about IV fluid, we kind of assumed there was going to be a strong rationale for the types of fluids that are commonly used. At the time, in our practice, it was largely saline. And the more we dug into it, uh, the more we found there really wasn't a strong rationale for the composition of different resuscitation fluids. And that kind of led us on a winding road um, to the SMART and SALTED trials, which were um, published in the New England Journal in 2018. And in those trials, um, we compared the most common classes of crystalloids used in U.S. hospitals, um, which is saline or, or 0.9% sodium chloride, some people call normal saline, and this other class of crystalloids, commonly called balanced crystalloids, which most people are familiar with, lactated ringers and plasmolite. So we really just compared saline and these balanced crystalloids, which are more like plasma in their composition, across a very large general population of hospitalized patients. So both those in the emergency department who were going to be hospitalized um, on the floors, which was the SALTED trial, and the patients treated in an ICU, which became the SMART trial. And in those very general populations, we found that balanced crystalloids in general um, produced better outcomes, namely major adverse kidney events were lower um, in both populations, so the SALTED and SMART studies. Um, we thought those results were very important, but we also realized that narrow populations, such as those with sepsis, are also really important to study. And we were really excited to do this sub-analysis on sepsis, which is, what, which is one of our first sub-analysis off SMART, um, for a number of reasons. Sepsis is a critical population to look at for fluids uh, for a couple of reasons. As everyone knows, um, fluids are recommended as a first-line high-dose treatment for sepsis. So patients with sepsis tend to get a lot of the intervention, right? They get a lot of volume. So this is a critical um, population to study because of the volume they receive of fluids, particularly early on. In addition, uh, patients with sepsis tend to have a metabolic acidosis, and we think that metabolic acidosis and saline-induced acidosis may be an important pathophysiologic path for how saline uh, results in some of the effects it does on patients. So 
Um, we're really excited about sepsis, and this is our first big sub-analysis of the SMART trial. Gotcha. Before I turn our attention to Matt, maybe, Wes, you could uh, just break down for us, are there any other um, side effects of saline um, that balanced crystalloids uh, would have over uh, the use of saline? Yeah, so the, so the pathophysiologic mechanism is really important to think about, and, and we've we've been thinking about this, though our trials have mainly looked at clinical outcomes. And in this study, and in, in addition to a couple others, we've tried to start to explore, is it the high chloride load uh, of saline, or is it the non-GAP metabolic acidosis that saline induces that may lead to some of these renal effects and some of the effects on mortality? We actually don't know specifically. It's mainly hypothesized that the high chloride load may be in combination with the induction of a metabolic acidosis are the key pieces of, of saline specifically um, that, that may um, result in uh, less ideal outcomes in balanced crystalloids in some patients. Got you. Okay, so let's turn our attention to um, Matt. So, Matt, maybe you could give us the rationale and motivation for the study. And then one of the key questions that we would like to address is what dose of um, uh, balanced uh, 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 crystalloids versus saline would you need to have in order to determine an effect? Uh, thank you. So I think Wes introduced a lot of the rationale for this secondary analysis in talking about the fact that sepsis, for those of us who practice emergency medicine, critical care, is kind of a defining illness, right? This for sepsis and ARDS for medical critical illness are these very common conditions, few effective treatments for which IV fluid and antibiotics are seen as kind of the first-line initial therapy. And so it's, I think, a natural subgroup, and it's one of the reasons this was only pre-specified two subgroups for the SMART trial based on patient uh, diagnosis, and this was one of them, sepsis and then traumatic brain injury. And patients with sepsis are enriched for the outcomes that we're worried about. So their patients are likely to get acute kidney injury. They're likely to experience short-term mortality. They also receive a large dose of the intervention, as Wes mentioned, that unlike critically ill patients overall, many of whom receive fluid, but it may be smaller doses. Patients with sepsis, the current treatment protocols often involve three or four liters of IV fluid in the initial 24 hours. <clears throat> And it's a group for which we know composition may matter. So the biggest trials in IV fluid management, such as those focused on hydroxyethyl starch, those focused on the use of human albumin, those have shown interesting signals in the subgroups or outright injury in uh, patients with sepsis due to, for example, hydroxyethyl starch that affect the uh, you know, renal function, the need for dialysis and death. And so this is a group, a subgroup of patients who are at risk for outcomes. IV fluid is an important therapy, and the prior studies of IV fluid have shown a either qualitative or quantitative interaction where these patients seem to have a bigger effect. And I think it, for the question of balanced crystalloids versus saline in particular, the prior work whether it's animal work by John Kellum in his CCM paper in 2013 comparing balanced crystalloids, comparing the effects of chloride among animals with sepsis versus healthy and seeing that there are effects in the injured animals with sepsis but not in the animals that are healthy. 
or Andrew Shaw's work in intensive care medicine and other places suggested this may be kind of a second hit problem where if you're completely healthy, the choice of crystalloid may not make a large difference on uh, in your kidney function, your outcomes, whereas patients who already experience inflammation, uh, experiencing metabolic acidosis, early acute kidney injury, that may be patients for whom uh, if there are detrimental effects of chloride or acid-based disturbance introduced by saline, they may have a bigger effect. And then the second half of your question is, how much fluid do you have to get to have uh, a substantial effect? We don't know the answer to that for saline or balanced crystals or really for any fluid. Um, I would say for broadly, the amount of fluid we've uh, in clinical trials that has been needed to introduce an adverse effect has been way less than we thought. So I think of the starch trials as the classic example of this, that the volume of hydroxyethyl starch that for some patients causes a, appears to cause AKI, the need for renal replacement therapy is in the range of one to two liters, right? These are small volumes of fluid. And I think our early experience with our clinical trials, the SMART and SALT-ED trials, um, it suggests the same thing, that the SALTED trial that Wes led, even just controlling intravenous fluid in the emergency department, so patients who are in the emergency department 6 or 12 hours, controlling the fluid there but allowing clinicians to determine the fluid once they were admitted to the inpatient wards, that time period appeared to be enough to affect serum bicarb and serum chloride for 72 hours at least thereafter, and uh, major adverse kidney events. I think the same was true in the SMART, at least the parent SMART trial. It appeared, despite low average fluid volumes, it um, may have been enough. I think it's important to think, remember, though, that these are all populations, and so a median value of fluid is not necessarily representative of what's going on in the whole population. In both of these large trials, the median is low, but there's you know, four or five thousand patients who were receiving high volumes of fluid, and and uh, may that may be where much of the difference is. Um, it is certainly the larger amount of fluid patients get, the larger separation in serum chloride, serum bicarbonate, and some of the intermediate measures of efficacy we see. Gotcha. So I think uh, Western Match have given us a really great um, overview as to the rationale for choice of fluids. And I think, think your comments about the multi-hit hypothesis for causing renal uh, issues is pretty important. So let's turn our attention to your actual study, Matt. Maybe you could just give us a, a brief overview of your study methods and how they addressed any limitations of previous studies so that you got to answer the question that you posed. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. So the, this study we're talking about today was a secondary analysis of the isotonic solutions in major adverse renal events trial, the SMART trial. And the brief overview of that trial, um, which uh, is being analyzed in this secondary analysis, is that SMART was a cluster randomized cluster crossover trial comparing balanced crystalloids, so the clinician's choice of either lactated ringers or plasmolite A, versus saline, 0.9% sodium chloride, among 15,802 critically ill adults in five intensive care units at a single uh, academic medical center. And this secondary analysis looked at the pre-specified subgroup of patients with sepsis. And we, uh, in the statistical analysis plan and manuscript for the primary trial, identified this as a group with, uh, that we were interested in looking specifically at 
and for all the reasons we've outlined. And so this analysis was planned to basically look more closely at that group to be able to evaluate not just primary outcome but secondary outcomes and to try and make some attempt in an exploratory way to understand what might be happening more mechanistically uh, than the overall trial could get at within the limitations of the data that were available in the trial data set. I think one of the big challenges when designing this trial or thinking about interpreting this trial is for a subgroup like sepsis, how do you define that? And I think um, there's, in the method section, a lot of text around that, which I can summarize. This was defined in this study using the same approach from the original trial that we wanted to be consistent in the primary analysis, which was using ICD-9, or International Classification of Disease, 10th Edition Clinical Modification System codes, so ICD-9 codes for sepsis, which is a, a commonly accepted approach for working with administrative data and the size of these trials is more comparable in some ways to administrative data than traditional clinical trials. But that definition has a lot of limitations or potential limitations. So we also define sepsis a number of other ways that were kind of set out to address those limitations. And those included physician manual chart review by using sepsis-3 diagnosis to say, does this clinician, without knowing study group assignment or outcome, think this patient had sepsis? And perfectly objective ways like, did this patient have cultures drawn? Did the patient have blood cultures drawn? And even the limited group of patients who had blood cultures that were positive, which we uh, figured would be objective and was very unlikely to be influenced by study group assignment. And so we took that cohort of patients defined as having sepsis and compared the main and out outcomes looked at in the initial trial between the balanced crystalloid and saline group among those with sepsis. And I think you asked about how this might address limitations of prior studies. There's been a lot of prior work looking at the choice of saline versus balanced crystalloids for patients with sepsis, but it's all been in either animal models or large observational studies using um, big hospital data sets where indication bias is a huge problem that patients who get a certain crystalloid may be the reason they may be getting that fluid chosen for them is that they're sicker and that's more likely to influence the outcome that confounding by indication bias is a huge problem. And obviously, the randomization of the original trial design gets around that, minimizes the effects of indication bias. And there have been a small number of randomized controlled trials in this area that enroll patients with sepsis, but the number of patients in those trials has been limited. So, uh, for example, the SPLIT trial is a nice, well-done cluster crossover trial of plasmolite versus saline for sepsis, but the total number of patients with but that was for all critically ill patients, and the total number of patients with sepsis is only 84 patients. So being able to look at outcomes from 1,641 patients in our current primary analysis added the power to be able to detect potentially meaningful differences in uh, clinical outcomes. Actually, I think we got a really good idea as to what your study was about. So maybe, Matt, you could just summarize the key findings, and then after that, I'll turn the attention to Wes, and he could let us know what the key limitations were in terms of interpreting uh, those findings. Yeah, absolutely. So our primary outcome for this secondary analysis was 30-day in-hospital mortality 
And in patients assigned to the balanced crystalloid group, that was 26.3%. In patients assigned to the saline group, 31.2% of them experienced that outcome. And so that's about a 5% absolute risk reduction in that outcome of 30-day in-hospital mortality with using balanced crystalloids rather than saline. And to put that in context, that translates into a number needed to treat of about 20 so for every 20 critically ill adults with sepsis using balanced crystalloids rather than saline might be expected based on these results to prevent one patient from experiencing 30-day in-hospital mortality. There's a laundry list of secondary outcomes that were evaluated in the original trial and evaluated in this paper. Um, and of those, vasopressor-free days, ventilator-free days, days alive and free of renal replacement therapy, major adverse kidney events, which is the com positive death, uh, new renal replacement therapy, and persistent renal dysfunction. All of those were uh, in favor of the balanced crystalloid group and the confidence intervals didn't overlap one. So kind of a very consistent signal in our primary analysis and analysis of secondary outcomes. And that was consistent when we changed the definition of sepsis away from the ICD-9 coding to physician chart review or patients with positive blood cultures. Anyway, you cut that group, those that analysis seemed to show about the same finding of a lower mortality with balanced crystalloids compared to saline. And some of the interesting, very exploratory analyses that we included in the manuscript and supplement were questions of, I think there, Wes outlined two basic mechanisms, one of which is chloride-induced acute kidney injury, renal replacement therapy, and deaths, one of which is chloride in, or saline-induced hyperchloremic metabolic acidosis in patients already at risk for that, and then potentially increased vasopressors or increased renal replacement therapy use. And in this analysis, we did observe that the patients assigned to saline had similar vasopressors and similar lactate concentration at the time of ICU admission, but over the next 72 hours required higher doses of vasopressors and had higher serum lactate concentration. So that's exploratory. We don't know about the mechanisms of that, but it hints at that second pathway being maybe something to focus on for future research as opposed to a lot of the um, prior research would have been very focused on how chloride might directly mediate kidney injury. I think the other question that's kind of laced in here that's not a main finding but is exploratory is there's been this thought that, well, saline's probably safe. I'll just avoid it in patients who are already hyperchloremic or who have a metabolic acidosis or low bicarbonate baseline. And so we... Um, evaluated these patients with sepsis and the effect of saline versus balanced crystalloids based on what their starting chloride concentration or starting bicarbonate concentration is at the time they're showing up with their critical illness. And those values didn't modify the effect of balanced crystalloids versus saline. So it was not as if you could use chloride or bicarbonate to predict patients in whom saline would be safe or the effect of balanced crystalloids would be better. So these effects were not limited to those who already had low bicarbonate or high serum chloride. And so I think those are the kind of the top line findings, 5% absolute risk reduction for mortality in this study, consistent across essentially all of those secondary outcomes, um, and some interesting exploring things having to do with kidney injury and metabolic acidosis and vasopressor use. And there are clear limitations to this design. Wes, do you want to talk about some of those? 
Yes, and I think Matt did a really nice job summarizing the clinical findings of this study. If it's okay, I'd like to mention a few of the methodological findings as well, because I think they're in some ways equally as important. Um, so in this study, um, we did not randomize individual patients to balanced crystalloids and saline. This was a cluster, randomized cluster crossover trial, which meant in the medical ICU where most of these patients were treated, um, the type of fluid was actually assigned based on calendar month. So in January, for instance, all patients were assigned to saline, for example, and then February 1st, the fluid of choice or fluid on protocol switched over to balanced crystalloids. So it's a, it's a cluster assignment approach. Um, and going into these studies, you know, we had questions of whether this type of assignment was going to balance our groups. And we were very pleased, both in the main SMART trial and in this secondary analysis of sepsis, our table one, or baseline characteristics, were very well balanced between the saline and balanced crystalloid groups, which um, I don't think was necessarily a given, which was going to happen, um, but we were very pleased and were impressed with this type of doing a trial in terms of balancing uh, baseline characteristics. So I think that's a, a methodological point that's important here. Um, secondly, uh, I think another important finding this, you know, maybe not immediately obvious by reading the abstract is the adherence to the assigned crystalloid group was very, very high. And it was high even early in the treatment course. So in a traditional randomized trial where you may consent and begin protocolized treatment on study 12 to 24 hours after arrival, um, these patients were actually on study protocol immediately. And the first doses of crystalloid were actually on protocol and consistent with treatment assignment, which I think is very important. Um, that if you're a couple liters in, for instance, of saline resuscitation before randomization to balance crystalloids, I think any signal could be easily washed out by that fluid received before randomization. So I think those are two kind of important methodological points. And, and the third one I'll point out is Mechanistically, at least on a high level, um, findings that we expect, we did observe. So in other words, patients in the balanced crystalloid group tended to have less hyperchloremia and less metabolic acidosis. So at least on a kind of a measuring serum electrolyte um, level, we had expected findings from our two fluid types. So those, I think, are the, the key findings in addition to what um, Matt talked about from the clinical effects. Um, do you want to move on to uh, limitations? Yeah, that would be great. So, so is it, with all, all studies, there are, of course, limitations, and I'll outline a few high-level ones. Um, this is a single-center study, so these are all Vanderbilt patients. Um, I think replication of these findings is going to be critical. Um, so it is certainly just a single-center study. Um, a lot of patients, but the patients were treated by basically one team and in one culture. I think also importantly, there was some clinician choice here. Um, adherence to assigned crystalloid was generally high, but clinicians did have an option to opt out and cross over. So if for whatever reason a patient didn't uh, look like would um, respond well to saline, even if they're in the saline group, a clinician could choose to give a balanced crystalloid. So we don't know exactly what the effects of that are on our trial. And lastly, um, we, we get a lot of questions about different types of balanced crystalloids. 
So what about lactated ringers versus plasmolite versus perhaps even a fluid with sodium bicarbonate in it? Um, very important and interesting questions. We just don't have the data here to be able to answer those. So we can really compare saline versus this balanced crystalloid group as we um, have classified it. And largely that was lactated ringers in this study. Gotcha. Matt may have a couple other uh, limitations too. Matt, any limitations that you identified after reviewing your paper again? No, I think Wes is covering them. I'll, I'll add that obviously study group assignment was known and not blinded here. And uh, we talked already about the contortions we've gone to to try all the different definitions of sepsis. But I think in any study like this, how you define that key ex exposure is uh, subject to scrutiny. I think that's worth looking at here. In the overall study, I think one of the limitations we've looked at is the small volumes of fluid. This may apply here, though less so. The vol average volumes were 4.5 or 5 liters. And then I think any time you're doing a secondary analysis, especially a subgroup, even if it's pre-specified, I think it's worth mentioning. These are all interesting and exciting findings. They make sense physiologically, and you kind of walk out the mechanism. But this whole thing could represent type 1 error from multiple testing, and so I think has to be seen as hypothesis generating rather than conclusive. Great, and I appreciate you both highlighting those limitations. So let's get down to the interpretation of these findings. Um, I had a chance to speak with Jean-Louis Vincent from Brussels a month or two ago, and his argument was, well, why don't we just uh, choose the fluid based on the chloride level, the bicarb level, if the chloride's going up, switch to a balanced uh, solution. If uh, if the bicarb's low, you know, the, uh, it's a bicarb. Your findings would suggest that maybe that isn't true. So maybe, West, you could uh, address that issue. Uh, so how should I be choosing my fluids now? Thank you. Uh, we respect Dr. Vincent very much, and would love to hear what he has to say on this. Um, our data suggests that a couple things. One, um, sometimes when we're starting fluids, such as in the, the pre-medical uh, arena, such as ambulances or very early in the emergency department, we actually don't even know what serum electrolytes are at that point. Um, with, you know, the one-hour bundle of septic shock management, patients are now getting fluids immediately. And um, I think a, a reasonable approach here is to try to identify the fluid that is best for most patients, given the fewest amount of inputs. So in other words, patient looks septic, I'm going to start fluid, what fluid should I grab off the shelf? In general, at least in the United States, both lactated ringers and saline are available in most settings. So we think it's important to have an idea of what our kind of go-to fluid is in the absence of a lot of information about the patient. So that's kind of concept one. Concept two is, you know, we've been looking pretty hard to try to find scenarios where saline may be a better choice um, than balanced crystalloids for fluid resuscitation. And um, there's, we're looking at a TBI, traumatic brain injury group, um, where they're, they're, that'll be very important to look at. But at least in the septic patients, um, we're just not finding a compelling reason to prefer saline over a balanced crystalloid. Um, we're open to the idea that there may be a few patients here or there, but in general, for the general uh, practitioner who's treating most patients, um, we think having a go-to fluid is an important concept. 
And I think your comments definitely resonate with that of the editorial given by Paul Young, who made the argument that, you know, on a, the probability uh, level, uh, maybe choose the fluid which is most likely to be beneficial um, based on the available data. Um, Matt, uh, a comment that was raised about your paper was that the 60-day mortality showed no significant difference in outcomes. Uh, but obviously, your 30-day mortality showed a 5% absolute risk reduction. Maybe you could comment on that and uh, the, the, the reasoning uh, behind that finding. Yeah, absolutely. I'm happy to. So that's um, the odds ratio in favor of balanced crystalloids for the primary outcome of 30-day in-hospital mortality was 0.74. The odds ratio for 60-day mortality was 0.8. But the confidence interval for 60-day mortality, the high end of that was 1.01. So it did cross over 1, so it included no difference. I'm not sure that those are uh, different in the sense that uh, the confidence interval lies slightly on either side of 1 there, but the odds point estimates are pretty similar. But I think it's an important point about the timing of outcome assessment in trials and critical illness that there's these two balanced objectives, one of which is to uh, assess the effects of the intervention in a time period in which the intervention is having its effects, and the second of which is to push out towards longer and more patient-centered outcomes. And I think those can be, those are an important tension to be able to address. I think um, for a trial in which the fluid management was controlled early, I think it's not unexpected necessarily that you might anticipate the effects of that fluid on clinical outcomes to occur early and wane over time as, you know, those who take care of sepsis patients know this is incredible complex complexity in their acute admission, but there's also comorbidities and the um, number of events in terms of uh, mortality that uh, are introduced the further out you go from their initial fluid resuscitation, all of which might be expected to happen in both groups and add noise, uh, I, I think makes it very likely that the longer out you measure mortality, the less likely you would be expect to see the effects of an acute intervention like fluid. Uh, fluid. And, and that's an, important to think about. And for patients, if you have an intervention that has an early effect, but that effect diminishes over time, it may have less value. I think the short answer is that I think I don't think 30 and 60 day mortality are particularly different in our study. Um, but I think the longer you went out with that mortality, the more likely that other things would be happening, and the effects of a limited time intervention would be harder to see. Gotcha. And Wes, maybe you could move on to the next question about what do these findings mean for future research and clinical practice in sepsis management? And also, is there any caution that we should exercise uh, when using balanced solutions? Uh, a lot of clinicians may read this paper and say, well, you know, uh, I think balanced solutions are probably going to be beneficial rather than harmful compared to saline. Let's just administer them uh, uh, routinely. What cautions would you advise them? Uh, thank you. I think there's a couple important points here. Um, one, I think this study adds to the literature showing that fluid composition is potentially an important determinant of clinical outcomes, and we need to think about fluids as we would any other medication, that um, it's not you know, just a liter of fluid, but that the composition is important and should, we should thoughtfully consider whether fluid is beneficial for our patient in general and the composition of that fluid in particular. So I think one is fluid and fluid type is, is 
potentially an important uh, determinant of your patient's outcome. Um, number two, it looks like studying sepsis uh, very early in the course of illness is important. Um, we think that patients during the initial resuscitation phase could be particularly vulnerable to things like hyperchloremia or metabolic acidosis, and um, that treatment window is particularly important and therefore is a particularly important window to study as we're thinking about uh, clinical trials. Um, based on, on the results of this study, particularly when combined with, with prior studies, I think um, lactated ringers um, now um, can be considered superior to saline for most patients with sepsis. Um, however, I don't think lactated ringers is I don't think lactated ringers is necessarily the best possible fluid for sepsis management. So I think continuing to design new types of fluid and assessing uh, those fluid types against lactated ringers and other comparators is going to be important uh, as we move forward. Yeah, so when we're thinking about the potential downsides of balanced crystalloids, a couple key points are the tonicity of fluid, um, as well as the potential um, to induce a metabolic alkalosis. Those are two important considerations. Um, and thirdly, um, lactated ringers in particular has um, calcium in it, and a lot of the nursing manuals and um, um, instructions about administrations of medications, such as ceftriaxone, warn against um, concurrent use with lactated ringers because it has not been demonstrated that lactated ringers can be uh, given concurrently with some of these medications. Um, we're starting to look into the compatibility of lactated ringers and medications, um, though there is a warning on a lot of those. And in particular, when you're trying to give antibiotics and fluids quickly, sometimes that can be a barrier to use. And regarding the tonicity, um, I think it's important to think about patients who may have elevated intracranial pressure, and those um, it potentially could benefit from saline based on a mechanism of uh, lowering intracranial pressure. Um, therefore, patients with acute trauma or potential brain edema, I think we need a lot more uh, data and evidence around them um, before we can safely say large volume resuscitation with balanced crystalloids is safe. Gotcha. And then some of the clinicians may argue, well, why don't I just alternate one liter ring of lactate versus one liter saline and just go back and forth until my patient's fluid resuscitated? What would your response to that be? Yeah, I think that's potentially a reasonable approach. However, I'll point out there's really no data behind that. I'm not aware of any um, tested resuscitation strategy that looks at alternating saline and balanced crystalloids back and forth. I think it would be a reasonable approach to test. Um, but again, in sepsis, um, despite us looking, um, we really haven't found a reason to think that saline would be preferred in any large patient group in sepsis. So um, a balanced crystalloid approach, um, of course, following your patient closely, serially measuring uh, chemistries, um, looks to be a, a very reasonable approach based on the uh, data we have to date. Gotcha. And then, Wes, um, as we draw toward the end of this podcast, um, maybe you could share with us any future studies that your group has planned. Uh, you all at uh, Vanderbilt have put together some really great projects and really great publications over the last couple of years. So is there anything that we should be looking forward to in terms of fluid management and sepsis in the coming years? Yes. So the question is about what, what are we thinking about and what are we designing for future fluids research? 
Um, a couple of things. Um, one, um, as we've, we've done here with sepsis, we think it's going to be really important to evaluate different fluid types in narrower populations. Um, so we have analyses ongoing regarding fluid type and diabetic ketoacidosis, um, in traumatic brain injury, hemorrhagic shock. We think the signals may be different in those populations, and it will be important to understand um, the comparative effects of saline and balanced crystalloids in these kind of smaller specific populations as we think about potentially the, the increased use of balanced crystalloids in general. Um, also, we're thinking about um, comparing specific types of balanced crystalloids. So what's out there now is plasmalite, um, lactated ringers, and a couple other um, compositions. We think the differences may be um, large enough in those specific fluid types that they could affect patient outcomes. So studying comparative effects of different balanced crystalloids we think is important. Um, and lastly, there's some data coming out of largely France about the use of sodium bicarbonate containing fluids. So balanced crystalloids use anions such as sodium lactate or acetate and gluconate um, as substitutes really for sodium bicarbonate, which is kind of the natural anion in the body. Um, bicarbonate has been difficult to use because it's hard to store for long-term in plastic containers. However, there may be some techniques where we can actually start using sodium bicarbonate as the primary anion in fluids, and I think that would be a really important and exciting field to study as well. Thank you, and we'll definitely look forward to uh, those publications. So, um, Matt, um, maybe you could share with us uh, any insights that we haven't covered during uh, this podcast so far, anything that you definitely want our audience uh, to be aware of? Yeah, absolutely. So I think one of the main things that I've learned from uh, the SMART trial and the SALTED trial and this experience is that you know, the first IV fluid for uh, a patient with severe infection was given in 1832, and it's 2020, and we're just now starting to get some data comparing these very common therapies. So 30 million patients a year have been administered saline for decades now, and our system didn't have any mechanism to look at that and try and figure out what was best for patients and apply it. And so I think the bigger story or the bigger mandate from this is to think about how critical care and emergency medicine, our health system generally, can um, push forward an approach that focuses on a learning healthcare system whose goal is to identify these ther therapies that are in practice, that are used every day, that are common therapies for which we don't have data to tell us their effectiveness and um, use these novel techniques like cluster crossover trials and these EHR data, where big data is now becoming easily and cheaply available to, to identify places where providers vary. So anesthesiologists give lactated ringers, I'm an internist, I give saline. And not accept that variation for decades and let whatever effect it has on patient outcomes be hidden in the noise of clinical practice, but instead routinely and consistently use that variation as the wedge, as the leverage to conduct research to understand which therapy is best for which patients and then immediately apply that and do that iteratively. And I think that we're at the point where there are innovations that can allow that 
us to do this to make our health systems consistently safer and answer these questions that are not about fancy new drugs and new devices, the type of things that are traditional explanatory trials that are very expensive to conduct and take a long time that that those have prioritized, but instead the things that are probably improving care for patients, at least in critical care, where we've made great gains through supportive therapy. So I think we see this in addition to what it may mean for fluid or for sepsis. I think the big message here is there are hundreds of other therapies like this that patients are exposed to all day, every day, that we all do differently as clinicians because we don't have data. And the noise of clinical practice is too much for us to figure out without research which therapies are right for which patients and use those modern research techniques to systematically figure out what's right and then apply it to improve outcomes for this broad group of patients who are already receiving these therapies in today's practice. The field of critical care is ripe for research. That's uh, really great to hear. Um, I want to thank both Wes and Matt for a really great podcast. Um, and uh, we're looking forward to the work that you and your team are doing at Vanderbilt. It's been really impressive. And uh, we'll be looking out for your publications uh, in the future years. Take care. Thank you so much. Thank you. It was a pleasure speaking with you. A big thank you to Dr. Semler and Self. And a big thank you to all of you for listening to the Breathe Easy Critical Perspective podcast. I'm Dominic Pepper for the American Thoracic Society.